Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Indeed. Hello. Welcome to Kermode and Mayo's Take. I'm Rihanna Dillon. And I'm Robbie Collin. We're stepping in for Simon and Mark while they're off on their annual cruise. I believe they're in Mauritius right now. Ah. Very jealous. So, Robbie, the production team have asked us to introduce ourselves in the first bit. So let's start with you. Tell me something that no one knows about you. Goodness. OK, something no one knows about me. Um, I can. Here's, here's a good one. Okay. Yep. You'll be amazed by this. I can solve uh, Rubik's Cube in under two minutes. Are you kidding? I, true, true. If I had one here... <gasps> I would do it for you now. I do feel like it's convenient it would be that you on don't the, have on the radio, on, on, on a podcast as well. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> ASMR. The building tension. Exactly, yeah. Rubik's. <laughs> and it's kind of tactile ASMR while you're doing it as well, because you can just sit and, you know, practice while you're watching uh, a film or a television series. Very yeah, cool. Two minutes. Not every time, but sometimes. So there you... You go. And it's the first time that anyone has described that as very cool. <laughs> so, thank you. It's one of those things that is a very enviable skill that has... I guess the actual skill itself is useless, but it presumably it means that you are an incredibly intelligent person. It's amazingly useless. And it's not, no, it's nothing to do with intelligence. <laughs> if I explain how you can do it quickly, it just sounds really boring and sad. It's, oh, it's, to, do with, it's to do with algorithms. That's what I mean. It's, you have to kind have of to memorize really algorithms and well, look, well, look at what you've got. And go, okay, we'll do this one now. And then you move on to the next one. But yeah. I mean, you've lost me with algorithm, but... Uh, Fantastic. Thank you so much, Robbie. How about yourself? Rihanna, tell us something that we, we don't know about you yet. Once I sat down to interview Ben Affleck and after five minutes, he had to leave and go and be sick. <laughs> what was the question that prompted it? <laughs> I can't remember, but uh, he was um, looking very wobbly throughout and I think I put him off so much talking about Argo that he... He had to leave and vomit. Ah, oh, poor guy. I know. It was quite off-putting for me as well. <laughs> and the worst thing was that the, <laughs> the PRs wouldn't let me um, kind of start again. I had to just pick up where I left off. Oh, no. Pre-vomit. <laughs> but they released the tape. <laughs> yes, they did. Uh, so, Robbie, people might know now that you are very into Rubik's Cubes, but they don't necessarily know what you do when you're not moonlighting for Mark Hermode. So I am a film critic for the Daily Telegraph newspaper and um, do film criticism-y things here, there and everywhere. 
And I've seen you many times at many screenings. And this is the first time that we've been able to actually work together. Yes, weirdly, the stars have never aligned previously, but here we are. I know, and I am a very, very big fan, so this is great. Tell us what's coming up on the show today. Yes, so I'm going to review all of this week's essential new releases. We've got My Old School and Fisherman's Friends, one and all, in cinemas. And at home on streaming, we have House of the Dragon and Bad Sisters. And I believe you also had a chat with a very starry special guest this week, Rihanna. Yes, today's guest is, well, I know him as Bernie from Notting Hill. You might know him as Robert Crawley. It's Hugh Bonneville. Mr. Bonneville is not playing his charming Lord of the Manor role this time. You can find out more about his role in the Netflix thriller Babak and Vari's I Came By a bit later on. And there's even more. Yeah, so on Monday, there'll be another take two in which you'll hear more Hugh Bonneville. I hope you're big fans. We'll also be delving into the feature One Frame Back, which was this week inspired by My Old School. We've been asking you for your favourite true crime documentaries. Lots to choose from, Robbie. There are tons, and there are some fantastic listener suggestions. There are. Yes. yes, I think it's a really strong week this week. Send your suggestions for great streaming stuff to correspondence at kermodemayo.com and you can sign up to the premium value extra takes to get stuck into all of that stuff and access all of the extra things through Apple Podcasts or if you want to use a different platform, head to extratakes.com. If you already subscribe, then you're a member of the Vanguard. So thank you. I hope you were all listening very carefully last week because we have a follow-up in our first email. Dear The Breakfast Club and The Outsiders, since my younger brother Noah emailed your show recently to ask for classic film suggestions, I have felt the urge of light brotherly competition to send this long overdue email. Although I cannot claim to be the most religious listener in the church, I have been so in the recent past and continue to listen with keen interest whenever the show is on in the car or around the house. The summer of 2022 has so far been the summer of film and hopefully will continue that way. Since I turned 15 last November, I can now legally pester my parents about the films under that bracket and whether I can watch them. This summer has so far included The Sixth Sense, Snatch and an absolute personal favourite in 1988's Running on Empty among numerous others. Out of those three, which is your favourite, Robbie? Oh, goodness. Um, probably Running on Empty. Yeah. But I have such a soft spot for Snatch. Yes. Actually, that's what a terrible thing to say. That's, that's, that's going to be an awful bingo. No, that has to be deleted. Keep that Sorry. in. Okay. Keep no, that no, in. No, no, no. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> Um, briskly <laughs> on to the next point. I would like to ask for your suggestions along this route. Films are such an amazing escape from the frequent bird song and stinky pants wee things that go on around us in the world. For both me and my brother, in many separate but similar ways, also bringing us closer together. Sweet. Films like Running on Empty, as well as others like 1983's The Outsiders, another personal favourite, are a reminder of the beautiful world and amazing people around us. I would like to ask whether you could suggest any more of these labelled 80s B-movies to add to this summer. So far, soundtracked by Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska and Amazing Movies. Hello to Jason Isaacs, Down with the Nazis and up with 80s B-movies. Tim Crampton, 15, from Durham. Yes, so this is an interesting use of the term B-movie because when I think of 80s B-movies, I think of stuff like Commando, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is slightly higher brow and slightly kind of juicier and with slightly more more depth. By the way, not that there's anything wrong with Commando. Commando's no. a terrifically well, fun film. B-movies absolutely have their place. You know, I think they they get a bit of a, what, a bad rep? Yeah, a, a, a raw deal. A raw deal, of course, being another great Arnold Schwarzenegger B-movie. But <laughs> Very nice. What we've, what we've got here is, is, is someone who I think is kind of craving kind of genre mixed 
with depth. So my first thought with this is three um, hero directors of mine um, who had terrific 1980s, Brian De Palma, uh, Michael Mann, and David Cronenberg. But actually thinking back about the films that they made in the 1980s, I have a feeling that they are all 18s, which is obviously no good um, for a 15-year-old. So with De Palma, you've got Body Double, you've got Dress to Kill, uh, you've got Blowout, uh, Michael oh, Mann. Michael, I mean, fantastic films, Michael Mann, Thief, uh, Manhunter. You know, these are these are wonderful films. Uh, but Tim, being 15-year-old, I, you know, I must kind of stress, do not seek out these wonderful films uh, to watch <laughs> now uh, for another few years. But so I think the, the, the ones that I would go for, so first of all, After Hours by Martin Scorsese, which was, I think, that, that now this is 15 rated. Okay. And it was generally seen as minor Scorsese, I think, until, until fairly recently, possibly because it wasn't freely available until mm. it's kind of now you can watch it anywhere on streaming. Um, but it's got a very kind of uncut gems vibe as well. I think that was again maybe maybe is kind of coming back into fashion now. Mm-hmm. Very kind of frantic, very 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 mad, very highly strung. Um, so I would say definitely After Hours by Scorsese, uh, witnessed by Peter Weir as well with Harrison Ford. That kind of neo noir mystery is, is is terrific, and also uh, Jonathan Demme's Something Wild. Uh, you know, with Melanie Griffith. Um, those are. B-movies in the way in which Tim, I think, is talking about, Mm -hmm. which is kind of genre-inspired entertainment, but with real kind of substance and heft and style. So those are my three picks. I would say After Hours, Witness, and Something Wild. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tim. I hope that's really helpful. Let us know how you get on. Next up, dear Stan and Ollie, vintage listener, first-time emailer. I would like to give a shout-out to our local cinema, the Academy Cinema in central Auckland, New Zealand, an underground cinema showing independent films, foreign films and classics that is literally situated underground underground cinema nice Uh, last night while attending a 50th anniversary showing of Cabaret a cracker I noticed a sign on the wall regarding Jordan Peele's latest offering please see attached now attached (laughs) is a sign that says in consideration of our staff and patrons who have not yet seen Jordan Peele's nope please refrain from discussing the film spoilers in our foyer after the film thank you for your cooperation (laughs) Fantastic. Have you ever overheard a spoiler in a cinema foyer? I don't think I have. I mean, my mind goes straight to that Simpsons scene where Homer's on the way out of Empire Strikes Back and immediately spoils the I'm your father <laughs> line for the entire queue. Um, I don't think that's ever happened to me in real life. No, because I mean, you're the one doing the spoilers. You normally it. see this it first. This is the great, the great privilege of being a critic is that you can kind of get this stuff uh, into your head before anyone has a chance to tell you. Um, no, and do you know, when uh, we're going to talk about House of the Dragon later. Yes, we are. I have been assiduous in avoiding spoilers for later series of Game of Thrones, which for, for reasons that I'll come to explain, I never managed to reach. Um, I think, look, I think you can do it if you're determined. You can avoid spoilers. If you don't want to find out what's in a film, just stay off social media. Yep. Don't read reviews of the film yet. You know, you can you can still navigate that now, You can't I think. help somebody talking very loudly close to you when you don't necessarily know. No, that's true. That's true. And so, that yeah, the cinema for you is actually, maybe that's a slightly kind of minefieldy area. Um, they go on to say, I am confident that if you visit us on your next cruise, you'll be suitably impressed with our attention to the code. Best wishes and down with the Nazis in cabaret, BHFs and overheard spoilers, Matt Dawes. Thank you so much, Matt. Next up is Steve Davis, who's asked, have either of you seen Triple R on Netflix yet or RRR? If not, you're missing out. If you have, what did you think? Robbie? I have not seen Triple R yet, and I've been waiting to see it in a cinema. And because it's it 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 pops up here and there at kind of rep screenings, certainly in in London, it seems to be getting quite a good airing. But unfortunately, I've never managed to get along to mm-hmm. one yet. I gather it's a spectacle that's worth seeing 
big and with an audience. Rihanna, have you seen it? I have not, although I've read up on it and uh, it's based on a true life, on true life sort of... Oh, so it's to do with um, colonialism. It's British colonialism in India. Um, But the two... I think there's like these two main characters who are real life. I don't want to say vigilantes, but something they were in, they were inspired by historical figures. I think very little of the. I mean, the film is not a kind of a verity documentary. About what <laughs> happened in there? You know, you've got kind of people flinging wild animals at each other. So, <laughs> is that is that not how war works? <laughs> For anyone that hasn't seen it, says Steve, it has non-stop action, set pieces, English baddies hamming it up. I mean, they're very good at doing that. Amazing special effects, and will have you grinning from ear to ear at some of the scenes and cringing at others. It clocks in at just over three hours, but it flies by. And Steve questions himself, why have I never watched an Indian film before? Absolutely brilliant, but nuts and over the top. It's not the best film I've seen this year, but it is certainly the most entertaining. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I think that the, the idea that RRR, Triple R, is it, this is the Indian film that's breaking through to the, the kind of non-core audience for Bollywood in the mm. UK is really interesting because this is something that is not yet happened and it's strange that it hasn't and there are critics out there you know that like Mark Cousins being one who really champion Indian cinema in in, in the UK um, and I don't know it, it's, it's felt like it's kind of almost on a tipping point for a while I mean in the top 10 we'll come to discuss Lal Singh Chadha as well which is a beautiful really enjoyable in, in a, uh, Hindi film that's, that's playing in UK cinemas mm-hmm. now um, and I know that Paramount when they were releasing that they did have aspirations that this was going to be one of those breakthrough titles that would that would kind of mm. find a mainstream audience in the UK. For some reason, um, Indian cinema and Eastern European cinema in the UK are, are both very much marketed to those two um, expat and immigrant mm. communities. Um, and then if it finds people outside of those those you know communities, then wonderful. But that's not kind of um, what they're aiming for in, in the same way that, you know, um, French language cinema yeah. or uh, Japanese language cinema would be. Um, so I don't know, but it feels like Triple R has been the film to kind of lead people to this amazing uh, world cinema well. And hopefully, you know, having, having you know, surmounted that Bong Joon-ho style one-inch barrier of the subtitles, <laughs> people will, you know, be encouraged to seek out more. Lao Sing Chada, I, I, again, you know, we can discuss this in the top 10. That film is as accessible as Amelie. You know, it is so kind of easy to just sit down and, in front of and, 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 and enjoy and, and lap up. And there's this kind of weird misunderstanding with a lot of foreign cinema that because it's foreign mm. it must therefore be challenging and complicated and art housey and it's just it's not true and know? I wonder if there is that sort of hangover from very old school Bollywood of their hours and hours and the so much singing and people perhaps who aren't used to that watching cinema on that way feel a bit alienated from yeah, that yeah but then you know hours and hours and lots of singing was what Hollywood was doing in the 1940s and 50s so there's no reason that we shouldn't enjoy this and you know uh, and RRR is three hours long and Lasting Chatter is nearly three hours long mm-hmm. with lots of singing in it because, you know, <laughs> but these are kind of the, these are not alienating things and, and, and difficult things to, yeah. to watch you just have to kind of go with it Fantastic. Okay, we're going to get on to last week's streamers so Rufus and Anna last week talked about five days at Memorial this from AHDVD on YouTube, who said, I've seen the first three episodes. It's a tough but intriguing watch. I did find the editing distracting from the episodes itself. It cuts between the filmed footage and the archive footage with the aspect ratios changing for a lot of the shots. When it's used for split seconds, it's awfully jarring. But the editing was especially distracting in the first couple of episodes. But I do agree that Vera Farmiga and especially Cherry Jones were great in what I've seen so far. So five days memorial. I've had a tough couple of weeks, Robbie. <laughs> And I just couldn't quite bring myself to watch a programme about Hurricane Katrina. Yes, I've had a very easy couple of weeks and couldn't bring myself to watch it either. I mean, I think it feels like the kind of series you need to be in the right 
frame of mind. But what is that frame of mind? I've always wondered that really as a critic as well, to sit down and watch something that you know is going to be incredibly harrowing and difficult. Yes. I mean, so for me, this is because my specialism is film. When I tend to watch a series, it's always to relax. And therefore, I, I, I find it difficult to kind of challenge myself at the end of the working day to kind of sit down. I mean, not that you know, being a film critic has a particularly challenging <laughs> working day, but if you've been kind of chewing over of kind of weighty stuff that you've been watching, yeah. um, you know, during daylight hours, uh, you just want to sit down and watch Selling Sunset. At the end of the day, is that wait, is find, that your guilty pleasure, Selling Sunset? No guilt involved. Yeah, it's you know, it's Selling Sunset. It's fine. It's yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so so, so and look, cheers Hannah, and thumbs up from the booth. There. Hannah it's and quite... I have producer Hannah and I have had so many conversations about these sorts of shows, and she got me hooked on Below Deck, uh, which is have you seen Below Deck? No, but this is the this one is a that, phenomenon. It, it, it's the one about the luxury yachts, yes. right? Now this has a strange tie to the new Ruben Austin film Triangle of oh. Sadness, which is set on board a luxury yacht where things go wrong below deck and also uh, above deck. Mm. And um, yes, so look, there are these kind of weird synergies between like very elevated art house cinema and <laughs> super trash. Or anyway, this is what I tell myself when I'm watching it. Selling Sunset to me has a very kind of Mulholland Drive vibe, right? Because you have this innocent girl, Chrishell, from the country, comes to, to Hollywood to make her way in, 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 in the industry. She meets this kind of strange femme fatale figure, uh, Christina, um, who kind of, is she friend, is she foe? Nobody knows. They're up there in the kind of twisting alleyway, strange houses, very rich, weird figures, you know, kind of spinning around. It, it's, look... If you want to justify this stuff to yourself, you can you can find enough linking tissue to 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 make it work. So selling sunset above five days at Memorial. You heard it here first. Okay, time for our first review. I am so excited about this one. Robbie, what is it? Yes, let's talk about Bad Sisters, which is a new 10-part series on Apple TV+, Plus, which is written by and co-starring Sharon Horgan <laughs> of Pooling and Catastrophe and Divorce fame. Um, it's been adapted from a, a Flemish TV series called Clan, which was actually broadcast on, on Channel 4 back in 2016 under the title The Outlaws. Oh. Out dash laws. Rather than the in-laws, rather, Yes, exactly, exactly. And it's this kind of wildly entertaining comedy thriller whodunit hybrid. Um, and at the very heart of the, the, the story is this very unhealthy and unhappy marriage. Uh, the husband in this marriage is uh, played by Kleist Bang. He's called John Paul. And the wife, played by Anne-Marie Duff, is called Grace. And uh, it's clear this, this, this relationship is built on uh, extensive manipulation and gaslighting and isolation and very insidious sort of low-level constant abuse. Yes. Um, the, the reason for this is that Grace was, was previously very close to her uh, four sisters, who are played by uh, Sharon Horgan, Eva Berthistle. Uh, Sarah Green and Eve Hewson. And John Paul is trying to drive a wedge between Grace and her siblings. And the, the last straw in this ongoing low-level war of attrition is one Christmas day uh, where this long-standing tradition of a family swim at the sea, um, John Paul manages to trick Grace into not being able to go by, mm. by giving her champagne in, in the bedroom and then she becomes, she obviously can't drive because she would potentially be breathalyzed. Um, and here, here we have a clip of him uh, putting this nefarious plan into action. Take the bird out at a quarter past. It'll need to sit for an hour anyway. Be perfect by the time we get home. Come on, Blonnet. What are you doing? We're going to the 40 foot. We'll be back as quick as we can. You had a glass of champagne. You can't drive. I'm grand, really. No, 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 you can't drive. You had a large... Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. There'll I'm be guys perfectly... on every corner. Come on now, think. Well, maybe you can drive us Of course out. I can. I have a glass myself. I've not missed a swim since I was little. I'll be perfectly fine. Oh. Now, why would you go and make a scene on Christmas Day? Hmm? 
oh, it just sends chills up your spine. Yes, he's, look, he's such a great villain in this because he's not, I mean, he's he's horrible, but he's horribly plausible. And the the, the, mm. the writing is is so good around this kind of constant manipulation mm. that he's, he's, he's got going on. Um, it's very, very realistic. And then they just give it that little push into proper kind of genre th- thriller territory. Anyway, Grace missing the swim is the last straw for her, for her four sisters. And they kind of jokingly talk about, you know, oh, wouldn't it be great if we managed to kill this guy? And then, then she'd finally be free. And then they not so jokingly begin to discuss the possibility of doing <laughs> yes. that. And then they start to kind of... Uh, um, to, um, to 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 work out the logistics of how this this end might be achieved. Now, at the very very start of the show, so this is not a spoiler. John Paul is dead. So we see we see him in a coffin in a state of well with an erection. Yes, yes. with with an with an erection. And um, <laughs> and uh, Anne Rudolph is is kind of tearfully preparing sandwiches for the funeral. So we know at the start of the the show that he is dead. We do not know why he is dead. We do not know who is responsible for his death. But we, we know, know that not many people are mourning his death, right? Yes. No. That's right. That's right. The, the funeral seems to be um quite like there's um uh there's um there's, there's a great scene at the the wake where someone says to to Sharon Horgan's uh, Eva um. Oh, um, you know, it's very sorry for your loss. And she says, "Yes, I'm just, I'm just glad the suffering is over." And uh, someone says, um, "Oh, I didn't realise he had a kind of a deteriorating illness." Said, oh no, he didn't. <laughs> yes. um, but yes, so, so, and so, first of all, you have this this kind of very um, uh, intriguing setup. But then it's the way in which it's structured is it plays out as two parallel whodunits. Mm. So every episode, we wind back in time once or twice for these substantial flashbacks where we see the sisters talking about and and eventually beginning to to, to execute these these plans for how they're going to get rid of John Paul. And in the present, so after John Paul's funeral, we have two um, insurance uh, people, uh, played by Brian Gleeson, and uh, Daryl McCormack. Daryl McCormack, who was in... Um, Good luck Good to you, Leo Grand, and has that incredibly soothing voice. Oh my goodness, um, an incredibly soothing face. Yes, very soothing voice, very soothing face, very <laughs> soothing jumpers as well. The, knit, the knitwear in this, in this is fantastic. Um, Guy Lodge would be very proud. Exactly. Um, but the two, so the two of them are, are trying, almost in this, an inspector calls way, trying to, to fathom out what went on. So you have these two parallel whodunits running. Um, what happened and will whoever did it get away with it? And because of the, the really elegant structuring, both of these mysteries are ticking along in parallel. Um, it's as I mentioned, an inspector calls, so it, it's very much like, and also knives out. It's doing mm-hmm. the whodunit thing, but also in a way that involves a lot of contemporary social critique. You know, this is very set in a middle class Dublin milieu, um, and it's talking about you know the kind of the, the the lives these people lead, and it's getting kind of right down into the, the, the you know the compromises and the trade offs and the agonies that they've they've had to kind of go through in their own personal lives. It's not just kind of uh, frivolous um, whodunit stuff. Um, to me, it also um, had a real feel of Martin McDonough as well, and yes. not just because of the, the Irish, the Irish setting, <laughs> but because of the, the the jet black comedy involved. So dark, the humour is so dark the, and so witty. The really richly developed characters. I mean, I can kind of quote lines lines that you hear, and and they don't work because it's not the characters mm. saying those lines. Like, there's such a great moment where. Um, Sharon Horgan's character Eva discussing the you know the the demise of John Paul and she says oh you know he's Satan's problem now and you know for me to say that it's kind of okay so you can kind of see it's a funny line but the way that she kind of delivers, delivers that is it. like it's it's so so good it's very very character driven comedy very dark and it's using that comedy to kind of puncture holes in the the toughness of the subject matter and to allow you to kind of get in there and really kind of savor the toughness of it and the darkness of it but to kind of 
arm you for it if mm-hmm. if, if if that makes sense you yes. know, to kind of you can get in there and you can kind of in, enjoy it. i th- i thought this was um this was really terrific and as i said before um the, the performances are fantastic Kleisbang's villain in this i mean he's so kind of loathsome mm-hmm. in in this way that he is everything that he does is very very plausible but I, again it's just that kind of that that way of writing a thriller when you ground it in reality and then just give it that extra shove and and just to kind of heighten it just that little bit to kind of make it extra addictive and just goose it with this kind of electrical current. It's obviously it's called Bad Sisters, so it, it so much of it is set around these female characters. Do you think that we see enough of them to really get to grips with all of them? There are so many different personalities, so many fantastic actors. I mean, Sarah mm-hmm. Green is up there as one of my favourites. If she's in something, I'm going to watch it. Did they manage to get the balance right between all of them? Yes, I think so. Because they have 10 episodes to play with, they're able to kind of introduce the sisters. I mean, we get to know them all straight away, mm-hmm. but then episode by episode, we get more on on, on each one's life and backstory. And the, there's, I think it's the third episode with Eva Berthesel's character. Who also is such a revelation. Yeah, no, no, she's, she's... She's always been brilliant, but in this, she really it really feels like she shines. She's great. She's a full-time nurse and also a full-time mother, and she has this incredibly hectic life. Sharon Horgan's character, by contrast, is childless, and that, that again, you know, there's, there's depth there that is kind of dug into over the course of the mm. episodes. I mean, maybe for me, as, as, as a film critic, you know, having 10 whole episodes, hour-long episodes to play with, means that there is... You know, there's there's an element of character development that doesn't necessarily Luxury. need to be there. Oh. The, so, the, so that, for example, the fact that the two insurance guys, they have this. Their motive is that if they have to pay out on John Paul's uh, life insurance, mm. which is this kind of elaborately expensive claim, that which is what arouses their suspicions in the first place, um, that will send their firm under. And I don't necessarily think you need that. You could just have an insurance guy or two insurance guys who were incredibly diligent at their jobs. And, you know, th- that was that was enough. Like the Daniel Craig and Knives Out thing, we don't need yes. to know why this guy is so kind of determined to solve the mystery. We were talking earlier about, you know, when you sit down on the sofa at the end of the day, what do you want to watch? Do you want to watch something that's got substance and richness and is going to challenge you and make you think... Or do you want to watch the escapist frothy stuff? And this kind of hits Treads both the middle. notes yes, beautifully. It does. Bad Sisters is a big thumbs up from both of us. Now, still to come, Robbie. Yes, I'll be reviewing the sequel to Fisherman's Friends. This one's called Fisherman's Friends, The Desolation of Smaug. No, sorry, Fisherman's <laughs> Friends, one and all. Uh, we also have True Crime Doc on Brandon Lee, My Old School. Different Brandon Lee. Not the Brandon Lee. In fact, not e- not even a Brandon Not Lee. even a Brandon Lee. Uh, plus the new HBO series, House of the Dragon. Will this be the new Game of Thrones? Stay tuned to find out. And you can hear from actor Hugh Bonneville of Downton Abbey fame. But for now, it's time for the ads, unless you're one of the hardcore, in which case we'll be back after this. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed 
delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed. Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. Such as? Well, such as High and Low, John Galliano, which is the thought-provoking new documentary from Oscar winner Kevin MacDonald, charting the rise and fall of the fashion designer John Galliano. It's, uh, it traces Galliano's working and private life through the decades, candidly investigating his struggles with addiction and the industry pressure he faced along the way. It features conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, uh, Anna Wintour, and many, many more. And it is showing in UK cinemas from March the 8th. Or you could explore the Women's Cinematographers Film Group, streaming on movie in the UK from March the 8th. As women have found more equal footing in the film industries, directors, producers and screenwriters, cinematography remains a stubborn final frontier. Around International Women's Day, Mubi are spotlighting the artistic and technical work of women working behind the camera, including... Including films such as Annette from 2021, Benedetta from the same year, and more recently, Passages, all streaming in the UK from March the 8th. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo. That's mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. This episode is brought to you by the good folks at NordVPN. Mark, would you say that AI has been one of the hot topics of the last 12 months or I so. would indeed yes. say that, Simon. We've had uh, writers and actors striking over the potential misuses of AI. We've had many films exploring the topic, including uh, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, and The Creator, among others. We have, and although technological advancements bring with them exciting things, they also open the door to cybercrime. Yes, and with all these technological improvements, cybercrime will become more accessible to the average criminal and will become more frequent. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again. This is why NordVPN is so important. With one click on the NordVPN app, you are protected, meaning that you don't have to be tech savvy. Their threat protection feature shields your devices from viruses, malicious malware and phishing sites. Also, one NordVPN account can be used on up to six devices. Plus, you can get access to streaming services in other regions, all for the price of a cup of coffee per month. To get the best available discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. And you'll help support our podcast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. <laughs> We're back and it's time for the box office top 10. So at number 27 in the UK, it's not charted in the US, is Eiffel, which is the sweeping French romance starring Roman Duris and Emma Mackey. At number 10 in the UK, it didn't chart in the US, this is Prima Fasci, which is... Yes, this is the National Theatre Live production of the, um, the one woman play starring Jodie Comer. Uh, which is doing really, really well for so um, event cinema. I mean, it's it's made 3.6 million and it's been in the chart for five weeks. 
Um, I've not seen it. I love Jodie Comer. I think anyone who has felt uh, wowed by this, I mean, I know she's done other great stuff as well, mm. Killing Eve and everything, um, but do, if you've not seen her in The Last Duel, do seek that out, the Ridley Scott film, which is on Disney+. Plus. I think she is fantastic in that. At number nine in the UK, number seven in the US, this is everybody's favourite film, apparently, <laughs> where the no. crawdads sing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look. I've not heard a single good review from this. Uh, well, look, but there is there has been, in, in, in previous weeks, positive correspondence about this film. Mm. People are obviously enjoying it. I thought it was dreadful. I mean, Mike, there's not even any crawdads in it, <laughs> singing or otherwise. Number eight in the UK, number three still in the US. No surprises there. It's Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, I mean, my goodness, what an absolute success story this film has been. It's, yeah. it's like £78.5 million pounds in 12 weeks. I was also a big fan. I, and I like that it lent into the cheesiness as well. I could groan and laugh and cheer all in one film, which is always fun. At number seven in the UK box office and at number 12 in the US is Lal Singh Chadda, which I know you have a lot to say about. Yes. So this is a Hindi remake of Forrest Gump, of all things, wow. uh, starring Amir Khan. And it's been rebuilt around Indian historical tumult uh, from about the kind of mid-70s through to the present. Um, look, my deeply unfashionable view about Forrest Gump is it's actually a really good film. Mm. You know, should it have won Best Picture over Pulp Fiction? Probably no. not. But do I kind of lie asleep worrying about it at night? No, <laughs> because I think it's a fun film. I, I would say if anyone, and if, if Triple R is, is is either not playing near you, you don't have Netflix, and you want to, um, to experience Indian cinema, and this is playing near you, then please seek it out. You've really convinced me to go and see this. Good. On a big screen. Lao Singh Chadha. At number six in the UK, number nine in the US, it's Elvis. I mean, this has been talked to talked about to death, I think. Yes, and how delightful to see it doing so well. Because it's, this is the kind of big really creative fun. swing studios should be going for. I agree. Number five in the UK, number four in the US, it's Thor, Love and Thunder. Which is not the kind of big creative swing <laughs> studio should be going for. the exact opposite. I, I actually had a lot of fun with it. I thought it was good. I know that it's very proven, weirdly divisive. I don't understand who's going to see Thor. And coming out and going, well, you know, I went to the 29th Marvel film. I wasn't expecting that, for goodness sake. <laughs> no. The thing we is, know what we're getting now, It's right? cookie cutter. It really yes. is. Um, yeah, I knew exactly what I was going to get when I walked in. And I was absolutely right. Number four in the UK, number six in the US, it's very similar, is Minions, The Rise of Gru, which I had a lot of fun watching. I think it's the best Minions film yet. <laughs> slash Despicable Me film. I think they're kind of, they're owning now what that property does well, yeah. which is that kind of Looney Tunes-esque mayhem. This is essentially just five-minute Minion shorts set back-to-back. Back. Yeah. You know, what would happen if the Minions flew a plane? What would happen <laughs> if the Minions learned Kung Fu? What would happen if the Minions did a funeral? Yeah. And th that's what we get. And I'm, I'm in for that. It's that's chaotic wonderful. and brilliant. At number three in the UK, number two in the US, it's DC League of Super Pets. Yeah, which is just dreadful. I mean, it's... This is why I've not heard a single thing about this film. No, the um, it, it's, it's one of those children's films that just seems hell-bent on being as annoying as possible. And it's just the, the kind of script is like, yeah, 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 smarty pants stuff all the time. So you have Dwayne Johnson playing Superman's dog, uh, Kevin Hart playing a dog who is not Batman's dog. I'd assume he was Batman's dog because he looks a bit like Batman. He's not. He's a stray uh, who is, is part of this collective of, of, of animals in a pet shop that is, is blessed with superpowers and then have to defeat Lex Luthor's pet Amster or guinea pig? No, I you've think. lost me. Sorry, Robbie. It just feels like a corporate brand extension exercise. Like, how can it. we hit a younger audience yeah. with DC heroes? Let's do animals. And look, T 
Teen Titans go to the movies a few years ago. Lego Batman, yeah. I mean, they're corporate brand extension exercises, sure, but, but they're, they're done clever. with wit and they're done with passion <laughs> and they're funny and they're colourful and sparkly. And something for the parents as well. And I guess for this, there really wasn't anything for the adults. No, there's nothing for the adults. Fair no. enough. At number two in the UK, number one in the US is Bullet Train. And we have an email from Sam in Oxfordshire who says, I caught Bullet Train in a near empty cinema with a friend on Wednesday night expectations were somewhat low going in but I was pleasantly surprised kind of there was a very good funny heartfelt film somewhere in there amidst the blood gore and blood coming out of eyes more blood and more gore the film really could have done without that all the jokes were genuinely funny though and the acting was very good not a big Brad Pitt fan but thought he handled the role well I found the exploration of two contrasting sides of Japanese culture very interesting the action sequences were amazing you felt the bone crunching impact of punches thrown though as per Hollywood they barely did any long term damage also getting shot seemed to be just like a minor inconvenience barely a scratch enjoyed most non-spurty parts of the film and laughed many times thank you Sam I had a lot of fun watching Bullet Train I feel like I was very much in a minority of critics who did because everyone really hated on this I have not seen the original and I think perhaps that might be why Ah so the original it was a book it's, it, it was adapted oh, from a okay. novel so it's there was no film a, right, uh, this, is, this is the film adaptation of, of the book uh, Yeah I loathed it I thought it was absolutely abominable um, and um, it was just I, 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 that, that email sounds like a description of another film a film I would have loved to have seen Two two conflicting sides of Japanese culture. Excuse me? No. <laughs> I this mean, is, I think this is about as authentic to Japanese culture as Postman Pat. Michael I mean, there's Shannon nothing in this was, that the, was the head of one Japanese side culture. of the Japanese culture. Yeah, I don't yeah, think we can exactly. quite say that. <laughs> no, 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 no. And what really struck me about this is, it, it's you know, so it's been around for two weeks. It's it's made five million at the UK box office, um, which is kind of okay, not great. And it's being held up as this example also in the US, uh, where it's also done sort of middlingly. Um, as you know, a big Brad Pitt film, mega, mega stars can't open films anymore by themselves. Mm. It needs to be franchise based. Mm. You know, Brad Pitt. Look, Brad Pitt opened Once Upon a Time in Hollywood like three years ago, with uh, by which you know two weeks in had made more than twice what Bullet Train has made. Leo and that was, was in that, that as well. Was, well that was Leo plus Brad Pitt. So there you go. To, <laughs> and Tarantino. And Tarantino. Okay, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> but that was opened on names on the strength of the names yeah. of the participants alone, right? And um, Bullet Train, to me, does not feel like a Brad Pitt film. It feels like something that was written for Ryan Reynolds. And then for whatever reason, Ryan Reynolds couldn't do it. Because it has that sort of yes. snarky, weirdly, the same smart-alecky stuff as DC League of Super And you, keep, saying, meh, 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 you do meh. keep waiting for Ryan Reynolds to pop up, genuinely. You do, you do. Um, um, Aaron yes. Taylor-Johnson, though, he's got a very... <laughs> the look Robbie just gave me. I don't think you understand. The goatee did so much. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> look, he was... And the, the way that he gets more and more dishevelled throughout the film. He has that kind of guy, like, not even Guy Ritchie, but sort of inspired by Guy Ritchie, mm -hmm. early noughties. It's kind of a new generation of that. Going on with Brian Tyree Henry. Yeah. But do we need a new generation of that? It just felt like so of that time. But no, not for me. No. To Bullet Train and at number one in the UK, Nope. And number five in the US, Chris on Twitter, I thought Nope was brilliant. The marketing beforehand gave nothing away. I wouldn't agree with that, actually, um, because I did see one trailer and it made me furious. There was, what, there was one shot in one trailer that I thought was, I mean, once you've seen the whole thing, maybe it's not such a big giveaway yeah. because it's kind of intimating at something that you think might be there and actually is not in the way that you think it might be. 
listen, we're doing the, later. We're doing the kind of spoiler special stuff on Nope, so we don't need to talk in this ludicrously circuitous way. This is true. I mean, Chris is saying he went in totally spoiler free and was totally engaged from beginning to end, and I do think that is the way that you need to see Nope, which mm-hmm. is why it's as it's a struggle to talk about it in any capacity. To even talk about the genre that it belongs in, I feel, is a spoiler unto itself. But more on that later. Miri on Twitter says something really similar. I thought Nope was brilliant. Kiki Palmer's charisma and talent are undeniable. And I love how Jordan Peele is inspired by such interesting things and how he uses those inspirations as a springboard to something really unexpected, scary, funny and exciting. A five-star film from me. Next up from Lee Riches, I was lucky enough to see one of the most exciting directors of the last 10 years, latest, Nope, on opening day, courtesy of Crouch End Picture House. I loved every minute of it. So much to unpack and so much to enjoy doing so. Spielberg has been spread, mentioned and referenced liberally, but this is a Jordan Peele picture, intelligent filmmaking with an outstanding cast and crew. To invoke the great Barry Norman, his review of E.T., if you haven't seen it, you're in for a treat. And if you have seen it, you're in for a treat. And I didn't use Yep as my review. Love and respect to all animals. Thank you so much, Lee Riches. I think every critic who didn't use Yep in the review deserves a medal, frankly. <laughs> did you? Um, no, I certainly did not. Just Come just on. Checking. That's that's route one just stuff. Checking. No way. Um Look, I completely agree. And we can get properly stuck into this later on. We will. We have one more email saying, Dear Cookies and Cream, my name is Jamie and I'm a first time emailer and a long term listener. I've recently moved to Perth in Western Australia and have been searching for a new local cinema to call my own. On Thursday evening, I took a trip to the Lunar Cinema in Leaderville to go and watch the new Jordan Peele film, Nope. I sat myself in a good seat with a beer and a chock bomb, which sounds amazing. Australians sell these at cinemas everywhere. They consist of a scoop of ice cream in a cone that's then dipped into chocolate. I think the UK should sell these. They're incredibly Moorish. A right treat. Yeah. In our local view. Nowhere does snack food like Australia. Come on. <laughs> That's true. Lamingtons. Lamingtons using the Tim Tam as a straw for a cup of tea. <laughs> I mean, it's slightly <laughs> depraved, but my goodness, it's, it's very nice. I really love the way you say depraved. Do that again. Depraved. Yeah. It's, it's maybe the Scottish I love bar. It. It's a bit kind of Private Fraser on Dad's <laughs> Army. <laughs> I'd only seen the first trailer for Nope and I didn't really know what kind of vibe it was going to be. I was blown away by the film. And I've got to point, and this is me, Rihanna speaking, I've got to point out this next bit is redacted because it is very spoilerific. The film scared the living daylights out of me and I don't think I've been that scared by a scene since the infamous one in Fire in the Sky. Love the work you do and anywho, thanks. Down with transphobia and Nazis and up with women's rights and Watford Football Club. I mean, you had me with women's rights. Not so much with Watford. Thank you so much, Jamie, for getting in touch. If you'd like to hear more discussion on Nope, there is a lot more to come. Why don't you become part of the Vanguard and subscribe to our Extra Takes? This week, Robbie and I will be talking about Nope in the spoiler special. Just visit extratakes.com to subscribe to more good stuff. Our guest today is known for being Mr. Downton Abbey, which has won him a nomination at the Golden Globes and two consecutive Primetime Emmy Award nominations. And he, of course, starred in Notting Hill and Paddington. He's now the lead in I Came By, directed by Babak Anvari of Under the Shadow and Wounds fame. This is a very different role from anything we've seen him do before. The film I Came By, it's about a young graffiti artist who is very kind of down with the privileged and breaks into people's houses along with one of his friends um, to scrawl graffiti on their walls, destroy their art. And he sets his sights on a judge 
who is known as Saint Blake because of all of the work that he's done helping refugees in his work as a High Court judge. Um, But perhaps Hector Blake isn't all of it. He seems. This role is very different to anything we've seen Hugh Bonneville do before. You'll hear my chat with Hugh after this clip. Can you think of anyone who might have cause to target you? I was a judge, so yes, one or two people. What difference have we really made? Get inside their homes. Enemy time we won. You're 23, and what have you achieved? You need to let me get on with my life. If you want to keep writing, keep me out of it. Whose side do you want? I broke into that judge's house. I told you to keep me out of it. I don't know what I saw. Why would he have a letter addressed to Hector Blake? Hector's hiding something. I really tried to be kind. But I had this rage that was so liberating, so empowering. Do you want to know what happened? That was a clip from I Came By, and I am delighted to be joined by the star of the film, Hugh Bonneville. How are you doing, Hugh? Very well. Nice to see you. Lovely to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. I was very excited to see a new Babak Anvari film. He's one of my favourite directors. Tell us about how eager you were to be involved in one of his films. Were you aware of his previous work? I wasn't, to be honest. And um, uh, the script came along and uh, I was intrigued because it was a complete page turner and full of twists and turns in a very fresh and surprising way. I found it quite disturbing and unusual. And so I then I watched Under the Shadow and uh, was completely blown away by it. Um, Because, again, your expectations are subverted. The rug is always pulled and you think you're heading in one direction and you you find yourself in a different, going in a different direction. And so then talking to Babak and realising... Yeah, well, actually, being quite disturbed because he's <laughs> because he's such a sweet and gentle he's soul. Lovely, isn't he? Yeah, and this sort of nervous little chipmunk, and uh, <laughs> actually, he's got this deeply dark, sinister interior. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you know how it happened? That you know, were you kind of always in the conversation to be this character? No, I, I, I assume you know some gorgeous hunk dropped out, and so they, they came <laughs> to me. Um, I, I don't know what pro, what part of the process. I know that George. Uh, was already uh, on board, and uh, I, I worked with George when he was literally in nappies. George um, Mackay. George Mackay, sorry, yes, and um, uh, and obviously he's he's grown up to become this. I sound so patronising, but I did work with him when he was twelve or thirteen or something. <laughs> so to to work with him again after all these yeah. years it was a delight. And I've, when I bumped into him over the years, he's he's such a you know committed and and, and gorgeous actor to, mm. to watch, and uh, to have him you know leading this this film was. Uh, was a real coup. So I was very excited to be invited to be in the mix along with, with Percy and um, and Kelly as well. You say it was fresh and surprising reading the script. What was fresh about it? It sort of plays with genre really as much as anything, not in a sort of self-conscious way, but you, you do find yourself being wrong-footed mm-hmm. in terms of where your expectations, not your sympathies, but your expectations lie. And you start questioning your own... Uh, suppositions about character and character development and and story arcs and all those sort of structural things that as as uh, practitioners we sort of get hooked on but as a cinematic experience it's completely different you know you, you are there watching a story unfold and mm-hmm. it unfolds in an unpredictable way and that's always that is exciting and and that's what I found fresh. Baba Kambari does such a great job in all of his films about giving his audience a real sense of place so what can audiences expect from this particular angle of London? Well, I think without being too sort of 
too sort of strata about it or too self-conscious about it. He does reveal layers of society visually. Yeah. Um, so you, you do flit from the world of this comfortable, you know, upper echelon society character, my character, um, living in this, you know, very nice uh, suburban house uh, or you know, leafy, leafy streets of southwest London to the sort of grittier... Uh, environment of the housing estate where where George and, and uh, Percy's characters have grown up, and everywhere in between, really, you get a sense of the uh, the world of the police of, of that sort of society, you know, that mm. sort of strata of society of, of the establishment. My character, being a, a former High Court judge, you see the world that he's been um, <clears throat> working to help asylum seekers and, and uh, refugees and and the underdogs of, of society and human rights, that sort of thing, and and, and then you start to question the value of each of those sections of society yes the uh, the underdogs are out there protesting about the uh, about the establishment and, mm -hmm. and the unfairness of the system but what have they got to replace it with what do they have on offer there's a sort of helplessness in their protest yeah. you have the assurance and the and the solidity of the establishment the fact that my character for instance plays squash with the uh, with the police chief you yes. know so there's a sort of cozy nexus there and yet nothing is as quite as it seems. Mm. And um, and the whole structure of this uh, this little world that Babak creates so convincingly is, is sort of gradually shifts on its axis. I feel like horror often does reflect what is going on in society and it always has done. And there is so much to unpack in this film with that in mind. And we've had a few, a few horror films recently which look at the class divide and privilege, Get Out, for example, mm. Ready or Not. Why do you think that does feel so particularly pertinent right now? This film is actually coming out at a time when we're probably in one of the greatest national crises mm. of, of, of my lifetime. Uh, you know, not only have we got the effect of, the, of uh, Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine affecting the, the global conditions of food, but also feeding into energy. And uh, we're about to hit this extraordinary tsunami of energy price rises with an establishment that appears just to be on holiday. Mm. And, and that is angering and one feels helpless about it. And that sort of chimes in with exactly the, dis you know, the, the feeling of being disaffected that the, uh, the, two the two young protagonists feel in this, that they want to make a statement about the unfairness of society, of how you know, the rich and the established get away with it or have a sort of, uh, a sort of right to life that, they, that mm. they don't deserve or something. You're playing a villain in this. It does feel like a, quite an explosive performance. Is that something that you can find a catharsis in? I don't. I don't think he's a villain. I think he's just a you know sweet man who's been misunderstood. <laughs> Let's just clarify that from the outset. Um, uh, I don't know. No, I'm just. An, I, I, I am. You know. I don't. I don't mean to sound like I'm belittling what I do, but I am just an actor who turns up and interprets other people's work. Mm -hmm. That's the. That's the fun of it. You know, whether I'm playing a bloke with a Labrador in a big castle or a, or a bloke who's got a you know a lodger who has got a marmalade habit. This is just a sort of different take on that. Um, I'm just very lucky to uh, to be, do something that is as fun as this, as yeah. to, to play all these different parts. I don't. I don't feel that I'm a spokesman for anything, you know, apart from the character. We're talking about, you know, the other actors, Kelly MacDonald, George Mackay, but you don't share so many scenes with mm. them, often sometimes quite a solitary performance. How does that compare with some of the bigger ensemble films that you've worked on? Do you enjoy both? No, I really I really enjoy in any in any uh, piece. I think you always learn most about characters when you see them on their own, when yes. they don't know that they're because we all perform, you know, we're performing now, you yeah. and me. I, mean, I love it when you see a stage play and you see a character, you know, what do they, what they do when there's yes. no one else around, because uh, that's the most revealing. And uh, that's true True in this case. You learn quite a lot about the, the man through what he does. But as soon as you see him interact with others, then there's a different persona. And uh, I think... Uh, 
I think that's really that's really entertaining as well. You're right. I hadn't really thought about it. Well, watching the film, I think you don't. I, I'd forgotten that actually it is quite quite compartmentalized, and actually the way that Babak threads the weaves the story through is very clever because you 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 feel that you're seeing all their worlds together, but actually they are quite separate. You also have a few tussles in this. Have you kind of done a lot of action stunt work before? Well, basically, Liam Neeson based his entire career on me. Um, so start off with the serious stuff and then get into the action stuff later on. And, uh, uh, um, uh, it was, you know, it was good fun. But uh, I am a creaky man in my 50s and, and, and Percy and George are a lot fitter and younger. But um, so I taught them a few moves. Oh, I bet you way. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you have a stunt person as in, does, did you have someone who looked... Exactly like you. Yeah, it's yeah. It's basically Jean Jean Claude Van Damme as a young man is uh, is my standard. Wait, so they went back in time to get they did, your... they, yeah, right? Yeah, fascinating. Well, they needed someone as chiselled and muscular as, as I am. <laughs> How do you think that Downton Abbey fans are going to react to seeing their beloved Lord Grantham in such a different light? Oh well, I think they'll see a lot of echoes and uh, familiarity <laughs> because who knows really what goes on behind the green baize door? But I think they'll miss the Labrador. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Hector, your character does have similarities to the likes of the characters that you've played before. You know, he's very charming when he wants to be. He's in control. He's cool. And you do sort of channel quite a disarming British charm mm. in this role. Do you think that's one of the aspects that makes him even more sinister? I think, alluding to what we were talking about earlier, you know, we we, we put a lot of store by the uniform that people carry, or the bearing they the, the bearing they have in that uniform. Mm. Be it a a soldier or a policeman, a priest, or a doctor, we have certain assumptions, and 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 no less so of a high court judge. Mm -hmm. We we know that they are respectable, trustworthy people, and um, I, I'm very proud to uh, to represent the judiciary in that way. Have you ever met someone like Hector in real life? I hope not. <laughs> you wouldn't know. <laughs> you wouldn't know. <laughs> um, there was that scene which really made me laugh, which is you watching Rick and Morty. <laughs> is, is, are you a fan of Rick and Morty or is that no, new to you in this? Babak is. Uh, no, my, my son has introduced me to Rick and Morty. I have to say, I don't quite, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with Family Guy, but Rick and Morty, I just don't quite, I, I've never quite gone into that loop. But it was good fun with Babak having to explain to me why it's funny. I still don't get it. You can't explain Rick and Morty. You no, just you can't. can't. You can't. Obviously, this is the kind of film that is going to draw Hitchcock comparisons, mm. and I know that uh, Babak drew from film noir as well. Why do you think this type of genre film is almost less prolific now than it used to be? I know, I was thinking about that earlier, actually, because I think it's a great area of, of, of film, and Babak's really latched onto that um, by subverting expectations while, while building on the genre. So um, I think uh, I'd like to think that the word Anvari-esque will be coming into the lexicon very soon <laughs> because it's got a sort of distinct flavour of its own while yeah. building on the great, uh, great uh, noir traditions of the past and the thriller elements, as well as shining a bit of a spotlight on some of the themes we've been talking about, about society, about the sense of frustration and injustice that, uh, that so many people you know, feel disaffected. And how do, you, how do you conquer that? How do you make a better society? Hugh Bonneville, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us. Hugh is going to be back with us in take two for a further chat. But for now, thanks very much, Hugh. Thank you. That was a very self-deprecating Hugh Bonneville, the star of I Came By. He was a lot of fun to talk to. Sounds like a delightful gentleman. I love his description of his character in Paddington as a bloke who's got a lodger with a marmalade. <laughs> no, it's very funny. It's um, very sweet. It's like he really wouldn't say that 
the word Paddington all the way throughout. That's how he kept referring right. to that film. It was quite funny. I mean, I've not seen the film yet myself. I came by. Um, I'm extremely up for the idea of a British noir. I think it's very sad that we've somehow lost that strand of that genre that mm. Hitchcock did so beautifully. Yes, and all in the same way that Hitchcock in Frenzy, for example, gives you a real idea of sleazy Soho. I do mm -hmm. think this does a very similar thing in the leafy suburbs of, I think, Dulwich is where it's supposed to be set. I, do, I found that really fascinating, the way that Babak sort of explores our class system through these houses that we You're see. You're going to do that? Dulwich is the place to do it. <laughs> Isn't it just? I don't think it was filmed in Dulwich, though, which is slightly annoying. So, Robbie, something smells a little bit fishy in here right now. What's next? It's the next review. Uh, it's Fisherman's Friends One and All, which is uh, in, in cinemas from today. Um, you'll recall this brief moment at the start of 2021 when sea shanties were suddenly this viral. Do you remember that? My friend still sends craze. them to me. Yeah. Yeah, it was The Weller Man, and, uh, you know, it. It, was, it was such a big thing. The Fisherman's Friends films have both managed to spectacularly miss this moment where the, the, the subject matter was very hot. The, the initial Fisherman's Friends, which of course was based on the true story of this uh, amateur Cornish choir who were uh, discovered and then had a top 10 album. Um, it was out in uh, March 2019. Um, and now uh, here's a sequel um, when TikTok's now well and truly moved on to The Gentle Minions and uh, you know various other kind of wardrobe-based challenges. Um, <laughs> but that's sort of apt because the whole point of the Fisherman's Friends films, this story, is it's about success against the odds. It's mm. about taking something that is the opposite of trendy and managing to make it reconnect with a, a, a wider audience. Um, so in the initial film, um, you have Daniel May's Jade, as record exec, goes down to Cornwall for... Um, uh, a lad's weekend, I think, a stag weekend or something like that, and he discovers a choir and sees something in them that he wants to, to kind of bring to the world. This one is what happened next, and it leads up to their famous gig on the Pyramid stage at Glastonbury. They actually played the festival a number of times, but they had this one year where they were on the main stage, you know, the, the, the main attraction of much, much earlier than the likes of Beyonce, of course, but they were, they were up there, and that was a kind of a marker of, I think, how these sea shanties, these ancient songs um, could still connect with the, the general population. You know, they weren't this kind of relic, but they still had a real kind of a force and a passion to them that people that people enjoyed. Um, so the, the story that the sequel traces is to do with the kind of personal and professional tumult experienced by the band and specifically by James Purefoy's character, Jim, um, after that kind of first flush of success. Um, among the, 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 the various happenings in his, his life is that he falls for an Irish singer-songwriter played by Imelda May, who is an Irish singer-songwriter. Her character comes to um, Port Isaac uh, for some peace and quiet and to escape the, the eye of the media. And uh, here is a clip of uh, her and James Purefoy uh, squabbling over the proper way to assemble a cream tea. He's lovely. Yeah. Here, hold up. No, this could be the end of a beautiful friendship. What could? There are two types of people in this world. There are those who put a jam on first, and then those poor lost souls who reach for the cream. There are rules for eating scones. Ones we live and die by. See, if you are unfortunate enough to be born in them, then you put the cream on first. Mm. But on this side of the border, we like to do things properly, see? Big, dollop of cream, all in the jam. Mm. Thank you. You're welcome. You're first. Oh. For Why? the benefit of those listening, she just wiped the cream tea across his beard. 
<laughs> which I would not personally, as a beard owner, would not take to be such an affectionate gesture. You but you seem very tickled by it. You don't it. think that's flirty? I mean... That's frustrating. No, that would be annoying. <laughs> that would I, take some grooming. I mean, that and already that clip annoys me because they're having this conversation like not everyone in the world has always had this conversation every single time they have scones. Yes, it's called scones, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs> I, first of as all... As soon as I said it, I knew you were going to pick me up on that. The, uh, but what I... This is really frustrating because it's, that feels like it's written for an American audience, not a UK one. Yeah, I don't know. The thinking behind this film, I can't quite get my head around because the first one did fairly well in the UK. You know, it's obviously they thought, well, look, there's an audience for it. We need to get back together and do a sequel. It has the air of a sequel where they kind of bring together a lot of the people that worked on the first film sat them all down in the boardroom and go, all right, what are we going to do in this film? What are these people going to get? You know, And the answer is basically, ah, some stuff. <laughs> and then they basically need to, need to fill 90 minutes of screen time before they can do the Glastonbury bit. Because oh, you can't build the whole film course, around Glastonbury. Yeah. But you need to have Glastonbury. That's you the You need climax. to have Glastonbury at the end. So there's all this kind of soapy activity. You know, someone falls down a mine shaft like an episode of Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. <laughs> yeah, um, or Lassie. There's, yeah. there's someone kicked out by his wife for talking to this flirtatious woman at a hen party while they're on tour. And there's someone new joins the group, uh, played by Richard Harrington, who's, who's a Welsh farmer, which puts uh, James Purify's character's nose out of joint because first of all, he's, he's not local. And secondly, he's not a fisherman. Um, and then also he's struggling, uh, James Purifoy's character, Jim, he's struggling with alcoholism as well. He's right. struggling with the death of his father. Um, and it's very much like kind of, let's have this episodic, something goes wrong, it gets solved. Something goes wrong, mm -hmm. it gets solved. Something goes wrong, it gets solved. And now we're doing Glastonbury. <laughs> okay, we got there and we made a film and we made it last. Um, interspersed throughout this is the most kind of superficial Cornish colour that you can imagine. So people say things like, I've seen dressed crabs that look more lively. Mm. Or they'll have you in a street jacket before you can say stargazy pie. And look, I don't know, uh, Nick Moorcroft and Meg Leonard, the, the, the writer-director, also Piers, Piers Ashworth, who assisted with the screenplay as well. I don't know how connected they are to Cornwall. The sense I had while watching this is of hearing a mouse wheel click as someone scrolls down the Cornwall Wikipedia tab. I'm like, uh, should, we, should we do pasty here? Should we do pasty? Save pasty for later. Let's do tribute, maybe. Uh, Pirates of Penzance. Yeah, do Pirates of Penzance. And so it's very kind of, there's no kind of, I mean, to compare this to, to the films of Mark Jenkins seems mad, but there's no sense of this actually being Cornwall. It's very, it's, it has a very kind of touristic eye. By the way, Cornwall looks fantastic in this, as, as, as of course it would do. You can't make Cornwall look bad. That's, I don't think that has anything to do with the film, you, right? You can't. And I think this actually goes more for that kind of splendour of the natural landscape than the first film, which I actually found fairly objectionably um, slapdash. I, I, I was expecting something charming and corny from, from the original, and, and it just seemed very cobbled together. This doesn't feel cobbled together. It also understands what it has in James Purefoy to an extent, and that's, I think, why his character is left to do so much of the heavy lifting here. You know, it's him that's wrestling with the alcoholism, uh, the, having lost his father as well, this, this kind of new romance. But with the best will in the world, the writing and the surrounding performances are not of a standard with him to allow him to do really interesting things. Um, also, and this is a very kind of like technical quibble, but the singing itself does not sound that great. And I don't know, I don't think it's an <laughs> issue of talent. You've got one job to do, guys. I know, I know, but look, it's not, it's not an issue of talent, I don't think. It's, it's technical. So it's to do with the recording and the mixing. But, you know, unaccompanied male voices in a film like, you know, uh, Inside Lewin Davis, for example, yes. can be so kind of Which powerful. Which is currently on my record player still because we listen to that almost nightly. And even when they have that, I don't think it's a sea shanty, but, you know, the, um, and the old triangle at his lowest possible You're so moment. brave You're just to like, sing on a podcast, <laughs> by the way. It's like, I mean, yes. you know, 
Do I have a bad voice, do I? No, you do not. There's no bravery required, thank you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that style of singing can be so... If it's mixed right yeah. and if it's if it's handled well. And here it always sounds like actors singing along to a backing track. Bad show, Fisherman's Friends. It's time for the ads. Hey, it's Ben Bailey-Smith here, Substitute Taker. And this episode is brought to you by Better help. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, questions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's betterhelp.com slash kermode. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Now it's time for my old school, or my old school. I don't really know where the emphasis lies, but Robbie, what do you think? Yes, I was reading it as my old school. I think um, in the case of many documentaries, if the subject refuses to appear on camera, that's basically fatal. (laughs) Weirdly, in the case of my old school, it's the making of it. It's brilliant! This is a talking heads piece about a Scottish hoaxer who is known as Brandon Lee, uh, who in 1993 inveigled his way uh, under false pretenses uh, into a place in the fifth year at Bearstown Academy in Glasgow. Um, and the director, Jonah McLeod, was a classmate of his. Now, the precise nature of this hoax, it's its alluded to very early in the film. Uh, it's immediately suggested what's going on when he, he kind of, when Brandon enters the classroom in the first instance, his uh, fellow pupils initially assume that he's a teaching assistant, but then he goes to sit down on a desk beside them. But and they, he's wearing a school uniform. Yes, right. And also quite an old-fashioned school uniform <laughs> as well. So not the kind of 90s uh, Scottish school uniform of the time, which was like an Eclipse puffer jacket. That was my era. I saw myself on this. I mean, this was I'm sheer so representation here. I'm so glad it's you reviewing yes. this. Um, but no, he, he very much looked like um, someone who had dressed as a school pupil rather than someone who had just turned up uh, to, to school. Um, and here is a, a clip of um, that, that has a, people recollecting what Brandon was like in class. Now, Gary, can you tell me the medical term for what I'm pointing at here? Eh, it's a wally, miss. Uh. It became a bit of a running joke because as soon as there was a question that nobody could answer, everybody's attention just turned to Brandon. Said, Brandon, do you know? Of course, ten out of ten times he always knew. He always knew the answer. Well, miss, your finger's on the bulbourethral gland. It's otherwise known as Cowper's gland after the anatomist William Cowper. 
So remember she said, sometimes Brandon teaches me biology. It's a shame that you can't see this clip because visually this film is so interesting because they have this brilliant cartoonist who has reenacted all of these past scenes. Yes, and it's in the style of the Grange Hill comic strip (laughs) from the theme tune, which is, of course, contemporaneous with that, that period. But in this brilliant concession to the Scottish setting, the sausage that flies through the canteen on the end of a fork is not an English banger but a square of Lauren sausage. And again, I would you know, never have noticed that detail. That's brilliant. Exactly. This is maybe why I'm here this week, in fact. Um, <laughs> so yes, the hoax was uncovered in, in 1995. And it was this brief uh, scandal in the press. Brandon gave interviews on breakfast television at the time. I have to say, this story would be treated very differently if it broke today. 100%. And we keep saying hoax, but actually that feels so much more whimsical. Yes, it is a very whimsical yes. film, but he the idea of a hoax, he wasn't really trying to pull a prank on anyone. He was doing this purely for his own ends. Yes, that's right. That's right. And um, so anyway, um, he's Brandon, despite wanting to do all these interviews at the time, is less keen to explain himself in person now. So um, the director, uh, John McLeod's compromise that he's come up with is that he records an audio interview only uh, with Brandon and then has um, this dramatised by Alan Cumming, who silently lip syncs along to the tape of the interview, sitting at a desk in a classroom in costume as the adult Brandon Lee. Now, this is so, this is great for two reasons. The first is that it writes this historical wrong because at one point coming, this was years ago, was attached to play Brandon Lee mm. in a fictionalised feature version of the story. But the second reason, it, and, and which is absolutely crucial to the success of the film, is that it absolutely f- puts front and centre this idea of imposture. You know, someone is pretending to be someone who they are not. And it's not as simple as just watching an actor playing a role. It's like you're watching someone, words being ventriloquised through them. And the puppet master himself is kind of tucked out of sight. And that disconnect between appearance and truth is absolutely at the core of what's going on here. So um, for the for the most part of the film, you have the former classmates talking about, you know, their recollections of the story and how strange and crazy it was. And, and then when the, when the truth came out, you know, how they all reacted. Um, and the, it's, it's funny in the way that listening to people reminisce about their school days often is. I think that was my favourite bit, actually, just seeing people interact with each other that they used to go to school with. We don't know if they're still best friends or not. They certainly gave the impression that they were all really, really close, yes, which was yes. lovely. There was that kind of classroom camaraderie, I think, comes across. Absolutely. You could see the them as children. And the, um, as well as the talismanic presence of this Lauren sausage flying through the air, you also have Claire Grogan. <laughs> a.k.a. Susan from Gregory's Girl, giving the, the the voice of one of the teachers in the animated sequences. So it's very much kind of tapping into this kind of tradition of Scottish secondary schooling and, you know, um, harking back to that fondly. However, later on in the film, it does something that I absolutely love, which is that it starts to question the recollection of the pupils themselves. Mm. And this version of the true story to which they have reconciled themselves over the course of the last couple of decades also turns out to have holes in it. Yes. And this is where the, the the film starts to question the way that, you you know, you can take a story and something very elaborate and strange that you were tangled up in much earlier in your life and you tell yourself stories about that story that aren't the whole truth in a way to kind of be at peace with it. So one of the issues is the chronology. People are keen to give Brandon an excuse for what he did. So they move around the events of his life subconsciously to kind of make it make sense. Complicity as well. Was he acting alone? Well, it's much kind of easier to understand if, yes, he was just some kind of oddball who who did what he did because it was what he did. But actually, that's not the whole truth as well. Best of all, there is this incident involving a school production of South Pacific, which insanely 
uh, he put himself forward for and was cast in the role of Lieutenant Cable. Yes. Um, and so he's, you know, he, Brandon in his interview talks about hiding in plain sight. Yeah. But the pupils have this, and also the staff, because there's two teachers at the time who are interviewed as well. They have a recollection of how this play went down. And it is not how the play went down. And, and we know a certain this because moment, it's because on they have a video. They have, camera, yes, they have the school video. And, fantastic and evidence. So, so McLeod makes his interviewees watch this video and their reactions to it not being the way they remember it. And one pupil in particular, and if I say more, it kind of will spoil why, but one pupil in particular, their reaction to this is the reason to make this film. And look, it's not kind of... Abbas Kiristami, you know, it's not kind of deconstructing reality and identity in, in, in that kind of incredibly intellectualized way, but it's kind of on the same path. And, and, and crucially, it's not pulling a trick on the audience, right? It's, it's, it's allowing us to discover this stuff at the same speed as, as mm. the interviewees. Um, I think there are times at which the film labours the ironies a little bit. There's a passage where it goes back and says, you know, oh, wasn't it ironic when? Wasn't it ironic when? And you kind of like, yes, oh, we, we sort of got this the first time round. We didn't need this extra stuff. Um, but it tells this weird story very grippingly and entertainingly. And as I say, the moment when the true story turns out not to be true as well is the kind of stuff that jangles around in your head for months. I, and I was hugely impressed. By yes, it. the first kind of 20 minutes, I, was, I thought it was brilliant. And then I did think it dipped rather. It was, I think, maybe 20 minutes too long, this film. And then the last 20 minutes was fantastic. And, and also just stay for the credits and for Lulu. As Lulu, well. yes, Lulu, who voices the deputy head, yes, and, and recorded sings. a theme song. I mean, I love it. I That's... love Lulu. Um, it's a really, really interesting film. But now it's time for what's on. This is where you email us a voice note about your festival or special screening from wherever you are in the world. Email yours to correspondence at kermodomayo.com. This week we have a message from Pat Higgins. This is Pat Higgins, writer-director of Powertool Cheerleaders vs. The Boy Band of the Screeching Dead, a new musical comedy horror which is screening at this year's Fright Fest on Monday 29th of August at the Prince Charles Cinema in Leicester Square. It's directly after Mark's appearance in Dueling Egos. So you'll be there anyway, so stick around and hopefully watch it. Cheers! So that was a very enthusiastic Pat Higgins and a massive shout-out to Fright Fest, which yeah. is such a brilliant cult show and... I think the best times at Fright Fest are always at the pub afterwards dissecting the terrible films. <laughs> Send your 20 seconds... Not that this is a terrible film. This sounds oh, like a good I've one. not seen it, Pat, but... Power <laughs> Tool Cheerleaders versus the boy band of the Screeching Dead. It sounds like art. That's, that's an irresistible title. It is. Send your 20-second audio trailer about your event anywhere in the world to correspondence at kermodomayo.com. A couple of weeks up front and we'll give you a shout-out. Or, to be precise, you'll give yourself a shout-out. Now, final review is The House of the Dragon, Robbie. Yes, House of the Dragon is the much-anticipated prequel to Game of Thrones, which is set 172 years before the birth of Amelia Clarke's Daenerys Targaryen from the previous series. Um, House Targaryen, I'm going to assume a little bit of working knowledge here of, of Game of Thrones. Um, House Targaryen are on the throne, they are on the throne at King's Landing. Um, and this is telling the story of their downfall. Now, there's a strange kind of deep impact versus Armageddon vibe to this, because on the one hand, uh, you have House of the Dragon on, on, on Sky and Now, and on the other, you have Amazon's Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power series, both emerging at just about Very the same confusing. time. confusing. And I keep getting confused with all of the different actors who are in both, because yes, there right, are so both, many brilliant British actors. Both enormous. Yeah, look, the character actors are booked and busy. It's wonderful <laughs> to see. Um, but, the, you know, the, these 
enormous, unimaginably expensive long-form yeah. fantasy episodes. And they all have long blonde hair in both. I know, putting the Aryan and Targaryen, <laughs> right? Um, but they are designed, of course, to um, make loyal subscribers of, 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 of customers. You know, you dip a toe, you get hooked. And we I know all about say, that here like, on Kermode Mayer's Take. Unlike the original Game of Thrones, I dipped my toe and hooked is 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 what I was. I, I'm in a kind of a, I think, a slightly unusual position to to, to review this. In I hugely enjoyed Game of Thrones, but I never finished it. Um, <gasps> I the, the reason was I had kids halfway through, and um, it was just one of the things that fell by the wayside, like hobbies, you know, fun. Uh, life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so so you know, I'm very kind of on board with the vibe. But where did uh, you get up to? I think it was about season four. Oh, okay, um, so, you so, still have so two certainly two. the enormous epic stuff after which this is this has been modelled. So this is the DP on these is uh, Fabian Wagner, who was the the DP on a lot of those kind of enormous bombastic later episodes. There is no kind of uh, tease or slow build to this whatsoever. It opens with you know dragons, CG dragons flying over King's Landing in these splashily extravagant CG um, special effects sequences. Um, and um, but but this is this is a kind of a moment of levity before we kind of get into the meat of the story, which is that there is a succession crisis in House Targaryen. Um, we have um, Kate Blanchett as a Galadriel style voiceover uh, at the beginning, not actually performed by Kate Blanchett, but definitely someone who has watched <laughs> Lord, Lord of the, of the Rings, Rings films. Yeah, <laughs> someone has watched the intro to uh, Fellowship of the Ring and said, "This is what we need to do." So she kind of sets up the the situation where there is an ear. Uh, to House Targaryen, but she is not the heir that anyone uh, desires. And here's a kind of a montage clip to set the scene. The dream was clearer than a memory when I heard the sound of thundering hooves, splintering shields and ringing swords. And I placed my heir upon the Iron Throne. Decided to name a new heir. I'm your heir. The firstborn child, Rhaenyra. Queen has ever sat behind the throne. Do you think the realm will ever accept me as their queen? A woman would not inherit the Iron Throne. Because that is the order of things. So the present king is Viserys Targaryen, who's played by Paddy Considine. And his daughter is uh, Rhaenyra Targaryen. So she's played as a youngster by Millie Alcock and in the later episodes uh, by Emma Darcy. King Viserys is desperate for a son to kind of solve this succession issue. And the first episode, I'm going to be super cautious with spoilers yes, here because this is idea. a very spoilable story, of, of course, as Game of Thrones was. The desperation for a son is the kind of the meat of the first episode. And there is a really kind of clever visual parallel drawn between... Um, so so um, the, the Queen su suggests when um, Rhaenyra is saying, you know, oh, I want to be out in the battlefield. Um, I want to be, you know, like a man. Why can't I do do manly stuff? And why do that? Why is my fate to be kind of to bear to be bearing children? And her mother says, "Well, you know, the childbed is our battlefield." There's this very clever pa um, parallel between her in in the throes of labour, mm -hmm. and then cutting back to that. Now, you were allowed to say erection earlier, so I if I say vulval, is that allowed? I think you can say vulval. Okay, a very vulval equal rights on the shaped uh, jousting arena, and there is so there's this visual thing very between phallic. you know there's jousting going on there's as well. There's very phallic jousting, there's very vulval architecture. <laughs> it's all very loaded in the way that Game of Thrones, of course, was too. Um, and and so, so you have the succession crisis there and then the future episodes are, are to do with people jockeying and manipulating and backstabbing in order to put themselves in the best position at this moment of weakness uh, for the house. Now, I will say Paddy Constein is in this a lot and he strikes the 
perfect tone for this kind of stuff, um, I think. And Reese fans as well, who plays his uh, confidant Otto mm. Hightower. Um, who's, the hand to the king. Yes, right. Um, they, they, they play the roles. I mean, they... Within the reality of the House of the Dragon world, they are totally serious, you know, delivering this this kind of dialogue, dialogue as if it's, you know, Shakespeare or Dickens, very oratund, very, you know, enunciated. Doesn't um, make any sense, but it doesn't need to. No, no, no. And then, but without it, from you watching it, it says, camp as a cocktail umbrella, <laughs> you know. But that's, but they, they yes. kind of get what it is yes. and they get that you treat it with utmost seriousness within the bubble mm. that is the House of the, within the bubble that is House of the Dragon. Um, I was not entirely, and so I've I've seen the first five episodes at this point. Oh, well done you! Um, I was not entirely sold yet on Matt Smith's character, uh, Damon Targaryen, who's the kind of wayward uncle. He's the brother of the king, and he is dissolute and lecherous and psychopathic, and he has been kept busy in in various. Um, Roles. roles around, you know, <laughs> yeah. around the castle, keep him out of mischief. He's currently in charge of the the city watch, which is an epically bad idea because he he turns those guys into this private army. Um, I he's he's the kind of Joffrey equivalent. I think he's not exactly Joffrey, but he's the the the, the pure kind of raw scumbag. Character. I mean, because of him, you we do end up seeing a severed scrotum on our screens. We do. Which I thought was just slightly unnecessary. I, I actually wondered if, before watching this, if uh, because of Lord of the Rings coming out, they would also try to like slightly tone down the sleaze and the violence. Nope. Nope. No, no, no. <laughs> There's a big kind of festival of dismemberment in episode one. Uh, episode four, it, it gets very, very sleazy, very dirty. Um, and actually, that's the episode where stylistically it feels like they're trying to do something a bit interesting and a bit different off the off the Game of Thrones um, template. It very, very much feels like you want more Game of Thrones. Here it is. There's no risks taken tonally whatsoever yet uh, that I saw anyway. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I was slightly disappointed yes. by. I think perhaps I did want a little bit of a change of direction. Yeah, maybe it's not, you know, we're not talking about we had, you know, the Star Wars trilogy. Now let's please have Phantom Menace. No, thank you. We don't want that much of a change. But like, let's maybe experiment with things a little bit more. That that has yet to manifest. It's very, very much more of the same old, same old. So look, for all those kind of trifling faults, it's enormously compelling and enormously watchable as Game of Thrones always was. For, for me, this, you know, we talked about this earlier, this idea that, you know, when you sit down on the sofa, what do you want? Do you want the complex and intellectually nourishing entertainment or do you want the veg out? Um, and for me, something like Breaking Bad is the complex and nourishing disguised as the veg out. House of the Dragon is the veg out disguised <laughs> yes. as complex and nourishing. So yeah. you feel quite good about yourself after having watched it. But I don't it know is... how nourished I felt, but yes, I agree. <laughs> I, I, mean, do... I, felt I was entertained, certainly. certainly. Primal base urges have been satisfied, <laughs> I would say. That was House of the Dragon. Thank you so much, Robbie. Production management, cameras and everything else was Lily Hambly. Socials this week are by Jonathan Imieri. Studio engineer was Jay Beale. Flynn Rodham is the assistant producer. Hannah Talbot is the producer. Guest researcher was Sophie Ivan. And Robbie, finally, what's your pick of the week? It's so close. There's so much good stuff. It's going to be Bad Sisters. Ah, yes, agreed. Next week, Mark and Simon are almost back, but not quite. They're bringing you a highlight show from Take Two. So if you're not yet part of the Vanguard, i.e. a subscriber to the Extra Takes, then next week is your chance to get a taste of what you're missing. Extra Takes available on Monday. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>